There's a poem that has been in my family for so long. In fact, this poem has been in my family for so long, my family has said for so long that it sort of lost meaning to me for a long time, uh, and now it's sort of back. And so I want to read this poem to you guys, uh, and you could close your eyes, you can read the poem on the screen with me, you can kind of use it as a prayer, do what you want with it while I read. Uh, but it's by a man named Rainier, uh, Rainier Maria Rilke, and it's called The Man Watching. This is how it goes. I can tell by the way the trees beat after so many dull days on my worried window panes that a storm is coming, and I feel the far-off field saying things I cannot bear, without a friend I cannot love, without a sister. The storm, the shifter of shapes, drives across the woods and across time, and the world looks as if it had no age. The landscape looks like a line from a psalm book, serious in weight and eternity. What we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated as things are by some immense storm, then we would become strong too and not need names. When we win, it's with small things. And the triumph itself makes us small. What's extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. I mean the angel who appeared before the wrestlers of the Old Testament. When the wrestler's sinews grew long like metal strings, he felt them under his fingers like chords of deep music. And whoever has been beaten by that angel who often simply declined the fight, went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. All right. It's a lighthearted poem, eh, guys? <laughs> We're in our second week of the Root series. Jen talked about Abraham last week. I get to talk about Jacob this week. And what we've done is we've talked a little bit about Jacob in the past few months, so some of this might feel like review to you. That's okay. Uh, but it's important to understand why Jacob is in this genealogy of Jesus. It's uh, a really hopeful, incredible, life-changing genealogy, and I want to get into some of the culture and context behind it and why it was, uh, mattered so much to us, right? Why did it matter so much to us? Why does it matter so much to the people reading it? Why did it matter to Israel at the time when they first saw the book of Matthew? Because really, when you're reading it, it kind of reads boring, right? It's kind of like, oh, you know, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, which I'll read for you now. This is the genealogy of Jesus Messiah, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. But... If you were to live in a time when this book of Matthew came out, you were to read this, you'd be like, oh my gosh, like this would be huge. I'll tell you why. How many people remember when I talked about the fact that around 70 AD, about 70 years after Jesus, the temple was destroyed? Do you remember this? Remember me talking about this? A little history. This general named Vespasian comes along and completely tears down a temple. He's like, you know what? The Israelites are getting a little too comfortable. They're asking for a little too much freedom. We want to remind them who's in charge. So they take this temple completely down. They leave nothing. So they won't even let the soldiers loot, which is like unheard of. They leave nothing. It's rubble. And the reason they left nothing is because they wanted the Israelites to say that the only God they had was Rome. That was it. So this is devastating. Like devastating for the nation. Right now they're in a place where the only place they can meet God was in the temple. And the temple's gone, so where do you meet God? This is like 9-11 times 10, right? This is Pearl Harbor. It's really, really awful. It's a national crisis that people are in. That's what's happening right now. So picture yourself. You are in a national crisis. You don't know where you can meet God. And so there's all these different reactions. One reaction is to double down on the law. So you have this whole group of people. Remember me talking about this? Your Pharisees, who all doubled, they all doubled down on the law. They said maybe, maybe we weren't following the law the right way. And if we do follow the law, God will come back to us. 
You have another group, remember I talked about the Sadducees? The Sadducees said, well, if we just uh, talk about our uh, promote or, or say that we are, um, uh, have allegiance to Rome, uh, then we'll be okay. Then maybe they'll let us rebuild the temple if that's what happens. And then there's the third group. And the third group is this group of Christ followers, right? And these Christ followers, you know, they're still not a very organized group of people, but this book of Matthew is, is being circulated. It's coming around. And so they would read this genealogy, and they would read it, and what you have to understand, they read it like a cadence, like a national anthem. They would get together in groups, and they would like, it would be like their anthem. Um, how many people have sung the national anthem before? Okay, when you sing it, I mean, it does a little something to you. I know our country's a little weird right now. We're a little divided. But when we sing the national anthem, let's just admit it. Like, the least we do is clap, right? We're like, oh. Right? Am I right? At most, and you, everyone in this room has done it, do not lie, during the Olympics when one of our athletes wins and they're up on the stage and the flag comes down, we're, you know, it starts to rain on our eye a little bit, right? We all get a little teary because we're like, oh, there's a sense of pride, right? There's a sense of like, this is, this is me, this is us. That's what this genealogy was like for this third way. This third way was like, wow, look at this. I'm gonna, and it's a cadence and you're singing it together and they get to Jacob and why does Jacob matter? All right, I'll tell you why Jacob matters, since you asked. Um, I'm going to go through the story, and I'm going to go through it quickly. And as I go through the story, uh, some of the scripture will be on the screen, so you'll have a chance to kind of give some context to that through the scripture. But what we have are we have two brothers that were born of Isaac, Esau and Jacob. And when they came out, Esau comes out first, which really matters. This is really important. Jacob comes out hanging on to his heel. That also matters. Uh, it matters because the firstborn gets the birthright. What was the birthright? It's the inheritance. It's the house, it's the cars, it's the money, it's all that stuff. In those days, it was like land, camels, and wives. So, you know, that's what you get. You get all that stuff if you are firstborn. So already we get this idea of competition because Jacob is holding on to Esau's heel like, no, I want, I want that, not you. And it's funny, I was talking about this with my nephews last week. I was, in, I was visiting family, and we were talking about Jacob and Esau, and they were like, doesn't it suck that Jacob gets to be in the genealogy? Like, Esau did nothing wrong. He's like a really great guy. And I was like, you know what? He was. He was a really great guy. He didn't do anything wrong. He helped his family. He hunted. He was a warrior. He protected his country. He was a really great guy. And one day he comes in, and he comes in, and he's starving because he's been out hunting and providing for the family and protecting people and all the rest. And he comes in, and he, his brother Jacob had made some food, and he goes, hey, give me some food. And Jacob is like, I don't know, man. What are you going to do for me? And he goes, come on, I'm hungry. I've been out for... And he goes, uh, Esau, if you give me your birthright, if you give me your inheritance, I'll give you the food. Now, Esau's a, a nice man, but he's not a smart man. And so he says, okay, I'm going to do it. He gives him the food. And so Jacob is like, I just got myself a birthright. I just got the inheritance. You guys know what Jacob means in Hebrew? You know what it translates to? It translates to conniver or cheat or liar. That's a, how about that? If your name's Jacob, I'm so sorry. Because <laughs> that's what it translates to. So his name is really, you know, conniver. I'm conniving him. So he connives him, and he's like, now I have this birthright. So we have to fast forward a bunch, and we fast forward to the time where their father Isaac is getting really, really old, and he can't see, and he can't hear very well, and he, you know, he's an old man, and he says to Esau, hey, I want to give you your birthright now. I want to give you the blessing. But first go and do what you've always done. Kill some food for me. Bring it back so I can eat and I'll give you the blessing. And Esau's like, yeah, absolutely. And so Jacob's like, no, that's my blessing. That's my birthright. So what Jacob does is he dresses up like Isaac. Um, Jacob was, or uh, uh, I'm sorry, he dresses up like Esau. Esau was a really hairy man, 
uh, and Jacob couldn't, couldn't even grow a beard. So, like, you know, I feel Jacob's pain and whatnot. But, you know, so what he did is he put goat skins all over himself. Put goat skins on his hair, on his face. And so he goes and he goes to Isaac and he goes, here I am. And Isaac goes, who are you? I can't see you, I'm old. And he goes, oh, I'm, I'm Esau. He goes, you don't sound like Esau. Let me, let, me, let me see you, let me feel you. So he walks over and he goes, oh, you're hairy. Yes, this is Esau, definitely. And so, and so Jacob goes, I'm, I'm here for the blessing. I'm here for the blessing. And so he goes, okay, Esau. I remember Isaac thinks he's Esau. He gives him the blessing. He gives him this beautiful blessing in Scripture that I really challenge you guys to read. In fact, yeah, it's really pretty. Um, and so he gives him this beautiful blessing. He tells him that you know all he all that uh, his father has will be his, and that he's going to reign over nations for years upon years upon years. And so uh, uh, Esau gets back, and Esau recognizes that that Jacob has stolen his blessing. And it's this scene out of a movie, and there's tears, and Isaac finds out, and Isaac is crying because he's like, I already gave the blessing to Jacob, I'm so sorry. And Esau says, when my, father is de- when my father is dead, I'm going to kill Jacob. And so Jacob has to run. So he does, he runs away. Runs away to his uncle Laban's house. When he gets to his uncle Laban's house, he sees his cousins, and he's like, I got some really great looking cousins. I'm not kidding. And he says that, and he's like, I want to marry one of them. So his uncle Laban goes... All right, you can marry the Rachel. Um, just work for seven years. So he works for seven years, gets to the wedding, opens up the veil, and it's not Rachel at all. It's her sister Leah. This is like a weird movie, right? Like everything I'm saying right now. Like, but it's in our Bible, the Bible. Um, it's in there. So, so uh, it's his sister Leah. So, so you know, so Jacob's like, oh, I see Laban. Like you're conning me. I'm. A, I, I get the con. I get it. I feel it. And he goes, okay, what do I need to do to marry Rachel? And he goes, uh, work another seven years. So he works another seven years. In those seven years, he continues to con. He takes all of Laban's best animals and brings them for himself. And then slowly but surely, one by one, gives uh, Laban all his sick animals. So he's basically setting up the situation where he's going to be okay. But I think 14 years does something to you, right? 14 years of work, 14 years of toil, 14 years of going, okay, you know, I'm running for my brother. Is this worth it? Because what, winning does not tempt that man. Here's how he grows by being soundly defeated by constantly greater beings. Being defeated. So I think he's been defeated a bit. I think what he says is he goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and I'm going to make amends with my brother. I'm going to make amends with Esau. And even in the way he makes amends, he's still sort of like, all right, I have now, now, you know, now Jacob has three wives and he's got three sets of families and he has, you know, thousands upon thousands ahead of animal and just a ton of stuff. And so he sends them in waves. He sends them off in threes. And it's strategic. He sends the first group off to, so if Esau sees them, that he can present them as a gift to Esau. The second group is a group that's a fighting group. In case Esau doesn't like it, well, there's a group there to fight. The third group is his group with his favorite people and his two wives, okay? Biblical marriage, by the way, lots of wives. So, this is how it gets set up, and this is the crux of the story. This is the most important part of the story. So I'll read it for you. I know Jen read it, but it's this important. That night, Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions, and so Jacob was alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was, was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. 
Then the man said, Let me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and humans and have, and have overcome. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. You know what the greatest lie we've been told is? One of the greatest. The greatest lie we've ever been told is failure is not an option. How many people have been told that failure is not an option? Plenty of times, right? It starts young. I mean, you know, we, we're not supposed to fail. We can't fail. You know, we have grades that tell us whether or not we're failing. Failure is not an option. It's a lie. Um, <laughs> how many people took a driver's test? <laughs> how many people did not pass the first time? <laughs> JP was really proud. He's like, me. <laughs> and we make fun of those people who don't pass the first time because failure is not an option, right? But then it gets, it's a little bit more serious. A few weeks ago, I talked about bodies, and when our bodies are failing us, this is where we struggle deeply because failure is not an option. We're not supposed to fail like this. What's going on? Think about uh, those of us who are married or have significant others. Uh, one of the things people tell me all the time is they'll say to me, I'll say, well, how are you doing? And I guess because I'm a pastor or whatever, they're like, oh, well, we, we hardly ever fight. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, like, and I'm like, fighting's not a bad thing, but for them or for many of us, fighting feels like failure. And failure is not an option. I have a friend, uh, a good friend who, uh, you know, was struggling with this client that he had, and the client was miserable, and, and this friend was dealing with this client for so long, and finally it was like, this client like made my friend like rethink his entire life and his entire calling and his career, because you're not supposed to have clients like this, right? And, and it was a perceived kind of failure, but failure, failure is not an option, it's a lie. You know what, I, I can't stand about the Christian church. I'm gonna be honest here, this bothers me greatly. I can't stand the lie that says, well, if you're failing, it probably means you're being disobedient to God. That is a lie. That is a damaging lie. Oh, if you're failing, it means that you're not following God's calling for your life. Really? I don't think that's true all the time, and yet there's great shame that comes from that statement because we believe that failure is not an option. One more. How many people have ever done a crowdfund? Anybody here? It's the scariest thing you can do because it means people are buying into you. And if you fail, are you a failure? Are do you lack talent? Are you the one that, that, that can't do this? Maybe you aren't supposed to be doing this calling. We believe that failure is not an option. I think about the people who are reading this book. I think about the Israelites who are reading at the time, and they're reading this, and they have failed deeply and greatly. They have done too much to where their temple is now knocked down, and they have nothing left, and there is an identity crisis. And they read about Jacob, and what do they read? They read that this man has wrestled with an angel. He's wrestled with maybe God. He's wrestled in some capacity, and he's failed. And he's failed. There's a couple reasons why he failed. I think failure is so tightly wound, or is so close to control. It's close to control. Um, the reason I ask, are we afraid of flying? I'm deathly afraid of flying. Deathly afraid of it. Me too. <laughs> No. But here's the thing. If I was flying the plane, I'd be fine. You know why? Because I'm in control. That's why. 
I think when it comes to our relationships, we're fighting. We have an expectation over somebody else and that expectation doesn't work out. And you know what? There's a sense of failure there because you know what? We've lost control over that expectation. Giving it up to crowdfunding, we've lost control. I think the reason that so many of us struggle with believing in a God and wanting to give it up to God our lives is because once we do that, we lose control. And sometimes it's a lot easier to say, I'm not sure God exists, than this to actually give up the control to something that might be a higher, more powerful, more infinite, more unimaginable being. And I look at Jacob's life. Jacob doesn't give up control, right? He doesn't, he's grabbing his brother's foot coming out of the womb. And, and then, you know, he, he, he manipulates his brother. He won't give up control of that situation. His father says, who are you? He says, I'm Esau, because he's in control. When Laban tricks him, he goes back and he tricks Laban. He stays in control. When he goes to make amends with his brother, he goes and he sends three waves of family, uh, three waves of his families because he wants to be in control. To be out of control means there is a failure. And he wrestles with an angel. And he's wrestling all night. And he's wrestling. He wants to be in control. He doesn't want to fail. He says, give me a blessing to the angel. And the angel says, what is your name? What does he say? For the first time, my name is Jacob. My name's Conniver. My name's Cheat. My name's Liar. I give up control. I've failed. And then what happens? What happens when he gives up control and fails? The angel says, good. Now you can be blessed. Now comes your blessing. Now you will be called Israel, which means you have struggled with God and have prevailed. It's through your failure that your blessing happens. And so if you're reading this in Israel, it's going through your failure, through your struggle, through that limp that you have, your blessing happens. That's where it comes from. It's not like, oh, I'm not listening to God and I'm not being blessed. It's, no, it's because I fight with God. Because I wrestle, that's where my blessing comes from. So what do we do about that? I think we take heart in what Frederick Buechner calls the magnificent defeat. Embrace our magnificent defeats. Another author calls it a crippling victory. I want you to embrace your magnificent defeats. Embrace your crippling victories because the thing is there is something we are holding on to right now, something that we have control of that we do not want to let go because we do not want to fail. And I want to challenge us today to, to look at that differently, to say, you know what? That might be the one thing that if I do let it go, I might find something far greater if I had held on to it. I don't know what that thing is for you, but it could be there. I had an acquaintance who was a, a Fortune 500 CEO, and when I was a kid growing up, I remember he was friends of our family who would tell us all the time, I don't hire anybody who hasn't failed completely. And we'd say, why? And he would say, well, number one, you recognize that you're still alive after the failure. He said, number two, there's a humility. You know that you can't control everything. Those make the best employees. Henry Nouwen says the greatest of leaders have paradoxical strengths, great confidence, and great humility. And so it's to embrace our failings. It's to embrace our insecurities. It's to say, you know what? I am walking with a limp, and I don't have it figured out, and I don't know if I believe in a God, but I want to give up control to something that is bigger than me is when the blessing comes. And I say this all the time to this church, but it's that Shawshank Redemption picture. I have to crawl through the cesspool in order to come out clean on the other side. When I embrace that failure, when I embrace that pain, when I embrace it, that is when we win. I always think it's interesting that the thing that brings us together every single Sunday morning is Jesus, right? Jesus is the, is the, re- Jesus is the reason. Jesus is the reason, right? 
And I think about it, right? Jesus is God incarnate. So God says, you want to know who I am? I'm here in the person of Jesus. This is who I am. And if we look at Jesus' life, the whole thing can be considered a failure. The entire thing. He's poor. He hangs out with the wrong people. No place to lay his head. People are constantly bothering him. The, the elite are always upset with him. And then possibly the greatest failure ever. What is the greatest failure ever? Death. He's supposed to be the new king of Rome, and he's dead on a cross. And it's through the greatest failure ever that we have possibly the greatest blessing of all of humanity, a resurrection, a grace, eternal life. As you leave today, I want you to pray a prayer. Let me let go of the thing I need to let go of. Let me not be afraid to fail. Allow me to fall flat on my face. Let me embrace my limp. I want you to pray those things. Pray those. Simple prayers. And for those of you who are like, oh, my life's pretty good. New York's been good to me. I came here and got a job right away. First of all, leave. (laughs) No, don't leave. But if your life's been that way, sit at the feet of someone who failed. They're wise. They have humility. And they know what blessing really looks like. And so as we get ready to take communion, what I want to do is I want us to just embrace the fact that it's through the greatest failure of the cross that we are here today, alive and in full blessing, just like the blessing of Jacob. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are bigger than us, that you are more infinite, and we thank you that you allow us to, to struggle. We thank you that you allow pain. We thank you that um, you give us the free will to deal with the difficult pieces of life that come forward. And we thank you most of all for the fact that you look at the pain, you look at the difficulty, you look at our limps, and you give us great hope through them. You give us great blessing through them. You show us that there are good things on the other side, and you show us in the culmination of Jesus Christ. And God, for that we are thankful. For that we worship. For that we celebrate right now.